Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, he's going to be giving his thoughts on Genesis 27, 30-33, and Isaac being caught in his sin. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching, and as always, thank you so much for listening. We'll begin by looking at verses 30-33, to where we find Isaac caught in his sin. This is, in fact, the heart of of this passage. We've got the structure in the notes from weeks past, but this is the center of the narrative. This is where everything is going. And I pointed out in the previous hour that this really is the center of it, Isaac's repentance. That's what Rebecca had in mind all along. Rebecca could have left things alone, confident that God would work it out and Jacob would be blessed. Her actions were taken more for the sake of Isaac than for the sake of Jacob. Ultimately, for the sake of Jacob, how do you separate it out? She wanted Jacob to receive the blessing from Isaac and not in some miraculous way to the side of him. And in order for that to happen, Isaac has to be restored. And for Isaac to be restored, Isaac has to be tricked into taking his sin and then seeing where his sin actually is. His sin has to become visible to him. And Rebecca, guided by the Holy Spirit, brings that to pass. Now in verse 30, we read it, It came to pass, when Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, indeed, Jacob had just gone out, had just gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came back from his hunting. Providentially, Esau doesn't arrive until Jacob has departed and so doesn't catch him. But what's interesting about this is that the text stresses that Jacob had just left. Jacob might have left an hour and a half earlier. It might have taken Esau longer to find something to make into a meal. But they just barely miss each other. Like in some movie where the tension mounts and then you just barely get by. You could see this being worked out by a Hollywood cinematographer. Just passing and not seeing each other as they go. The audience breathes a sigh of relief. Well, is that why this is here? Well, it does add dramatic tension to be aware that the story has happened this way. But I think that there's a theological reason as well. Why are we told this? Is it just to make us think, boy, it's a good thing Esau didn't catch Jacob because then he would have talked to him and he would have found everything out and it would have played out differently. Well, that's true. It would have played out differently. If Esau had found out what happened beforehand, this whole shattering of Isaac might have come about in a different way or maybe not at all. But I think in addition, it dramatically conveys that Jacob has now moved ahead of Esau. All these years, Isaac has sinfully put Esau first. But now, this scene that we're looking at shows Jacob is moving forward at the very time that Esau is coming in. Esau is now behind Jacob, 
in the events that are going to take place. He's not ahead of them any longer. And that's very visual here, very dramatic. And that's the shift that has taken place. No longer Esau leading and moving forward in front, but now Jacob moving in front and moving ahead of his brother. Well, we read further that Esau also made a delicacy, this food of deception, and he brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat from the hunted game of his son, that you may give me your own blessing. And Isaac his father said to him, Which one are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Remember that Jacob's meal was a combination of himself and Esau. That what Rebekah did was combine the two sons. She took two goats and combined them. She combined the food of Jacob with the spices of Esau. She took the clothing of Esau and put them on the body of Jacob. In all three ways, she puts the two of them together so that they, in a sense, stand and fall together. And so that what happens to Jacob includes Esau. Now, this is an important thing to understand. Again, we're so used to this story, and it's so easy to read it in terms of its just dramatic flow and tension. We don't necessarily catch the difference between these two meals. But when Esau brings a meal, it's only for himself. His meal does not include anything of Jacob in it. And if Esau had gotten the blessing, the blessing would have been Esau's and Esau's alone. But Jacob's meal combines the two. And when Jacob receives the blessing, Esau is included. When Jacob receives the blessing, Esau is included. Because Jacob is representing Esau as well as himself by the clothes he has on. Jacob's food is Jacob flocks plus Esau's hunter-gatherer spices. There are two goats combined in this meal. And so when Jacob receives the blessing, he's receiving it for Esau as well. Now, what does that tell you about Rebekah? She wants both her sons to be blessed. Again, I'm hard-pressed to find anything other than the heroic in Rebekah in any of this narrative. Every time I look at it again, I find something else admirable about her. She does not say, I want Jacob to receive the blessing. I'm going to make a meal for Jacob. Jacob's going to go in there, period. The way this whole thing is worked out, she's seeking to bless both of them, following God's command that Jacob be preeminent but Esau also included. That's going to be important because Jacob will include Esau. Jacob's going to go earn a whole bunch of stuff and pat an arrow, and he's going to come back and give a whole lot of it to Esau. And Esau is going to have the opportunity to be part of the covenant. He's going to reject it, but he's going to have the opportunity. So let that contrast be in your mind that Rebekah's food, Jacob's food, includes Esau, generously includes his brother along with it in the way it's set out here. But Esau's food does not. Esau's doesn't occur to him to do anything symbolically or at any other level to say, 
I'm going to include Jacob in this so he gets something along with it. So, I think that's important to understand the dynamics here. Now we come to Isaac's trembling. We can see it happen here. Suddenly this guy comes in with this good smelling food and it sounds just like Esau and suddenly Isaac knows that this really is Esau. See, Isaac's ears had told him right along who was who. Isaac's ears told him that the voice was Jacob's voice. And since the Bible tells us we should live by our ears and hearing the word of God, that was all Isaac needed. But Isaac lived by everything else, what things felt like, what things smelled like, what things tasted like. All the other senses that we're not supposed to live by, only in a secondary way. And so he blocked out the information that came through his ears, the voice of the godly son, in a sense the voice of God. Well, now Esau comes in and his ears tell him full well. Now he knows. I didn't pay attention to what my ears told me because I wanted the food. I wanted to be like... Adam and eat the forbidden food. The food of deception. Remember, delicacy is the food of deception, according to Proverbs. So now, he suddenly knows. Isaac starts to shatter right now. Which one are you? I'm your firstborn, Esau. Plan. Now, Isaac collapses. This has been going on for 77 years. I have to keep reminding us of this, but that's a long time. For 77 years, Isaac has known Jacob is supposed to receive this blessing. And Isaac has been more and more thinking he's not going to do it that way. He's going to cheat God and he's going to do it his way. He's going to sneak around in the dark and give the blessing to Esau. He knows he's not going to get by with this. And so, when he gets caught out, now... He trembles with a great trembling. I don't think anyone in here has ever done this. I hope not. But imagine that you were committing adultery with your wife's best friend or your husband's best friend. And you know that sooner or later they have to find out. But you just put it out of your mind. Sneaking off the motel room here, sneaking off there. I know we've all done this, right? But I mean... Just imagine that it was something like this. Because this is what people do all the time. They think, well, sneak off and do this. And in the back of their minds, they know it's going to be found out. Because people know each other. And they're going to find it out. But they just put it away. They don't think about the fact that their spouse is going to find it out. But at some point, when the spouse finds out, then what do you do? <laughs> well... Now Isaac knows. You know, he knew he couldn't get by with this. And yet, he kept pretending that he could get by with it. He knew who God was. Esau's the same. Esau's in on this too. Esau probably thought he could get by with it because Esau was a profane man who didn't think in terms of who God was. And that accounts for the difference between the two. But both of them knew they were sneaking around. Both of them knew that Abraham was going to be mad when Abraham heard about this. Was Abraham still alive? Oh, my goodness. Abraham was probably gone by this time. But there were other people who were around. And they knew they were sneaking around. 
And the people in the camp would hear about it. People who knew the prophecies would hear about it. Melchizedek would hear about it. Whoever else was around, they knew. And now they're caught. And Isaac trembles. This language here is picked up later on in the Bible in 42.28. This is very worthwhile hearing. This next instance of trembling, and it's one you're familiar with. Remember, Joseph deceives his brothers and sticks a silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And this whole deception that takes place in Joseph's narrative has this same kind of drama, only it's stretched out over a longer period of time. The brothers go down to Egypt, and they meet this scary overseer, and he throws them in prison, and they start to say to themselves, we're being punished for what we did to Joseph 22 years ago. (laughs) That means for 22 years, they've been thinking about it and suppressing it. And now that they are caught and stuck in prison, they start thinking about it again. And then they manage to get back to the land of Canaan. Then they have to bring Benjamin down there, and his whole time, all they can think about is, we sold our brother into slavery, and he's probably dead, and we did this 22 years ago, and now God is catching up with us. And the climax of this happens in the story in Genesis 42 when Joseph reveals himself to them. But the moment of shattering is right here in chapter 42, verse 28. They go down to Egypt, they buy food, and then they come back and the silver is still in their bags because Joseph returns it to them. Now that frightens them because they think, well, then these Egyptians are going to think that we stole this money and didn't pay them. So how can we go back down there again? And it says, their silver has been returned. Their hearts gave way and they trembled to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? See, this trembling, this verb here, and it's the context in which it occurs, connotes with it, God is doing something. And... We're real afraid. And it has to do with our guilt. Or it has to do with our weakness. Same language shows up in chapter 19, verse 16 of Exodus, where God appears in Mount Sinai and says all the people tremble. Well, God shows up, you tremble. God is showing up here in Isaac experience. And Isaac is trembling. The Hebrew words worth hearing. Harad. See, our word tremble has the sound of what it is in it. So does the Hebrew word harad, harad. You can hear the shaking sound in that combination of consonants. Harad. Well, that's what he did. He haraded, haradingly, a lot of it. God exposes him and now he's shattered. Well, in Isaac's case, this is true evangelical fear, which is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the first part of wisdom. It's where you start. It's where wisdom begins. And Isaac is now going to start becoming wise. He hasn't been wise up till now. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is desirous to make you wise. And the wise man 
has knowledge of good and evil, or wise woman, and that means they call good good and evil evil. You judge things rightly. God saw what he had made, it was good. Knowledge of good and evil is to call good good, to pronounce it, to recognize what is good and pronounce it good, to recognize what is evil and pronounce it evil. That's wisdom. That's true knowledge of good and evil. That starts with the fear of God. Adam was not afraid of God. So Adam called evil good and good evil. Isaac is not afraid of God. So Isaac intends to take evil Esau and give the good things to him and take good Jacob and give the bad things to him. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Well, that's exactly what Isaac is doing because there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, there's fear of God back in his subconscious. But it's not before his eyes because if it were, he couldn't possibly do this. What happens here is that fear of God, which is back in his memory, suddenly comes out before his eyes. That's what's happening here. You want to take this biblical language and unpack it. The fear of God is now before his eyes, and he's afraid. But that's the beginning of wisdom. Because now what he's going to do, he's going to give Esau a blessing that's appropriate to him. An evil blessing for an evil man. Or at least an ambiguous blessing. And he's going to give a good blessing to Jacob in chapter 28 when he returns and gives a second blessing to Jacob. Now he's become wise, started to become wise, the beginning of wisdom. Because fear is now before his eyes. All of us are kind of subconsciously afraid of God all the time. We don't think about it. You know, when you're having fun or you're at a party or you're asleep. You're watching a TV show or reading a novel. Or most days we don't think about being afraid of God, but then something will happen and all of a sudden, whoosh, there it is. You know that you don't trifle with God. We love Him, but He's also, whoa, He can spank. Nobody wants to be spanked by God. So, now it's before His eyes. And having the fear of God before your eyes starts to make you wise. And Isaac can start becoming wise now. Up to now, he's been a fool. Going for the food of deception, the forbidden food. Well, Rebecca, I say, has been successful. God has blessed her effort. He's changing. And Isaac does what Rebecca would have hoped. He confirms the blessing. I ate it. I gave him my blessing. Now bless he must remain. That shows the repentance. Because he could have said, bring that guy back in here. I'm going to take that blessing off of him and give it to you. He could have been infuriated. He could have cursed Jacob. And the curse would have gone to Rebekah. He doesn't know that. But that could have happened. But he doesn't. He confirms the blessing. Now partly, that's because he'd eaten the food. And when you eat food, you're at peace with people. You know, one of the more embarrassing, intense things that can happen in your life, and it's happened to me a few times, somebody that you're at odds with wants to take you out to eat and pay for lunch. You ever have that happen? You don't want them to pay for lunch. Because if 
it's one thing to go out and have lunch with somebody that you know you're really at odds with. It's another thing if they pick up the tab because it's hard not to feel beholden to them after that. And people instinctively know that and they instinctively want to do it. I remember when I first moved to Tyler, Texas and I was an assistant pastor in the church. One of the men in the church, and we were being paid next to nothing, came and gave me a $100 bill. said, you've been doing good stuff. I want you to have this. Well, it wasn't a year later that that guy was causing all kinds of trouble in the church. And I'm sure he expected me to at least keep my mouth shut, but I didn't. I had another friend who was in the pastorate in Houston, Texas, and there were a couple of elders there, men who should never have been made elders, but they were, and they were problem men. They had driven the former pastor to suicide. They had come into church one day, and it smelled bad, and the guy had hanged himself in the rafters, and he'd been there for about a week. And that's because these two elders had driven him to it. They'd made life such hell for him that he'd done it. Now, these two guys were still elders. They bought my friend all this furniture. They bought him all kinds of stuff. Well, you can't say no. What can you do? No. Oh, within a year, you know, he was having to come down on them about stuff. and I'm sure it surprised him. But my friend had to work through the fact that they'd given him gifts. And yet he had to say, well, those gifts come from God. And I'm not going to allow these people to bribe me. Well, something similar to that happens when somebody takes you out to eat and you know that they're really trying to get you in their pocket somehow. Make sure that you don't come after them later on. They're in trouble. Some people instinctively know to do that. I don't know how to do that. I mean, it would never occur to me to do that. But there are a lot of smoothies out there, and they instinctively know how to do that kind of thing. I'm not saying don't let anybody ever take you out to eat. But you know the Proverbs does say, when you dine with a rich man, put a knife to your throat and be careful, because his delicacies are deceptive. Well, Isaac has shared a meal with this guy. He ate the food he brought him. Now that makes it a lot harder for him to go around and reverse the covenant that he's made. You could because of the deception involved, but it's harder. But more importantly, he doesn't do it because he knows that this is what God intended all along. And God has worked it out and he submits to it. He might have turned in wrath upon Jacob, but his salvation is that he did not do so. Now, the contrast is with Esau. The same kind of thing happens to Esau, but without any grace. Verse 34, Esau heard the words of his father, and he cried out with a very great and bitter cry. He screams and said to his father, Bless me, me also, father. And then... It goes from there. Esau screams. Esau has known all along what God commanded. He's also caught out, but he doesn't tremble. This is not the response of fear. Esau doesn't say, oh man, God was in this, and now now we're caught. No. He just screams in pain. Pain and defiance. He doesn't submit to the situation, but his plan is to kill Jacob. Thus, Esau's response is the opposite of Isaac's response. Both of them come to the crisis point where God catches them out. 
And you know, it's very gracious how this happens. This sin wasn't just some private little sin, and yet God brings this crisis to pass in the privacy of a tent. It's not on a housetop. It's not out in public. It's not a great huge public humiliation here. But it's a crisis. It could have been a whole lot worse. It could have been in front of thousands of people. Well, Esau does not respond the way Isaac does. And the contrast is quite clear in the text. It doesn't say when Esau heard the words of his father, he trembled with a great trembling. No, he screams his defiance. Well, Esau has to be blessed as well. And it turns out that's not possible. Bless me, me also, father. And Isaac said, your brother came with deceit and took away your blessing. And Esau says, isn't that why he's called Jacob? Haven't you reserved a blessing for me? And the answer is basically no. I gave everything to him. Well, now, whose fault is that? Who are you going to be mad at for that? If Esau wants to be mad at somebody, he should be mad at Isaac. Isaac is the one who took it all and gave it all to Jacob so that there was nothing left for Esau. The sin was Isaac's. But Esau turns his wrath on his brother and not on his father. In fact, it's very interesting how it's worded here. Esau said in his heart, Let the days of mourning for my father draw near, and then I will kill Jacob, my brother. He still thinks of him as a brother that he's going to kill. This is rather perverse. I'm going to kill my brother. That's the depth of it here. That's how Cain and Abel it is. I mean, brothers fight. (laughs) Brothers always fight because they're so close. They have to live together all the time and they're in each other's hair all the time. I mean, I remember it growing up. And you always had that. But what does it come to when you say, he's my brother and I can't wait to kill him? That's way beyond the normal squabbling that inevitably happens when you're occupying the same space with your brother. Well, I think we see in verse 35 something that I guess we can be encouraged by this. It's encouraging and discouraging at the same time. Esau says, Bless me, me also, Father. And and Isaac said, Look, we shouldn't have done this. And God had said all along that Jacob was to be blessed, and now he's been blessed, and I did it. I shouldn't have misled you all these years, son. I'm sorry, Esau. I'm sorry I ever made you think that we could get around this. I'm sorry that I brought you up thinking that you were going to inherit the firstborn privileges because I knew better. And I realize Esau that it's going to be real hard for you to adjust now because we've been treating you like the crown prince for all these years. And it's going to be really painful for you to submit to your brother that you've always thought you were superior to. But you're just going to have to and I'll help you with it. We'll pray. Let's pray about it. No, Isaac doesn't say that. He says, your brother came with deceit and took away your blessing. He really blames Jacob. You have to ask, well, just how repentant was Isaac? (laughs) If he's passing the blame off on Jacob for his own sin, well, certainly he should have taken the blame on himself. I think what we have to see in this and what we're supposed to see is that Isaac's repentance is real, but it takes time for it to work its way out in life and into his consciousness. 
And we should understand that that's the way it is with us too, and that's the way it is with other Christians too. And just because a person has met God and has repented in essence of some sin doesn't mean that instantly and overnight all of their mental attitudes are going to be right. Isaac has essentially been blaming Jacob in his mind for a long time. Again, think of the psychology. I'm no great counselor and psychologist, but I've lived with this text enough to think about it some. God says Jacob is supposed to inherit. Isaac doesn't want Jacob to inherit. He wants Esau to inherit. But month by month, day by day, here's Jacob. And Isaac naturally is going to resent Jacob. He wishes Jacob wasn't there. Jacob is a thorn in the flesh. Jacob is such a nice guy. He's so efficient. Esau is kind of a bum. He's married these crummy wives. They're horrible women. Now his children are growing up. They're horrible children. Isaac still intends to give the covenant to them in spite of all of that. Here's Jacob over here being a model son, the perfect man. Isaac resents him. And that doesn't just evaporate. We like to think it did. When you repent, all of the bad sinful habits of mind evaporate, but they don't. We get bad habits of mind in our lives. They don't disappear immediately. You have to work them through. And that's what the rest of this Jacob narrative is going to be about. I've talked about this in Sunday school a bit. What has happened to Jacob in this narrative is that all of Isaac's sinful consciousness has been placed upon him, and now Jacob is going to have to work it out as Isaac's replacement and heal the situation. So Isaac is imperfect, and his repentance, though real, doesn't mean instant sanctification. And when we see this in our own lives, I think it's a little bit comforting to understand that God knows that's the case, and He will deal with it. And when we see it in other people, we need to remember it too. Because we're always much harder on other people than we are on ourselves. We expect perfection in other people. Well, we don't have it here. This really was not a helpful thing to say. Well, verse 36a, and this is where we're going to stop. Esau says, Isn't that why his name is called Sneaky? For he sneaked against me twice. That's the way the Fox translation has it. Your version, whatever you're looking at, may have different. He took my firstborn right. Now he's taken away my blessing. Well, now, what is really happening here? Once again, we got to remember... I wish more of the commentators remembered this, or more like Luther in remembering this. When the wicked speak charges against the righteous, we're not supposed to believe what the wicked say. When Pharaoh says to Abraham, this is all your fault, we're not supposed to take Pharaoh's side. And what Esau says here is basically a pack of lies. They're the lies that he wants to believe. The word Jacob doesn't really mean sneak. It means replacement. Jacob did not sneak against Esau in getting the birthright. Now, there was something sneaky about this event here. But he didn't sneak against him twice. That dealing for the firstborn right with the lentil soup, that was perfectly above board. The Bible says it was. Esau could have gotten food anywhere else. There's food all over the sheikdom out there. 
No, nothing sneaky about it in the least. It's all very legal. Today, swear this to me. Done legally. Probably called in some witnesses to see it. Nothing sneaky about that. It's done in broad daylight. In front of witnesses. Legal language. Everybody knew about it. Isaac knew about it. Isaac was sinning against that in the story we have been considering. Jacob did not take. He says, my firstborn right he took. He did not take it. He bargained for it. Because Esau despised his birthright, he sold it for a cup of lentil soup. Well, that's not Jacob's fault. In fact, it's a good thing Jacob got it from him. If he thought so little of the covenant, better give it to somebody else. But he didn't take it. Now he says he's taken my blessing. Well, he didn't take the blessing because it was never Esau's in the first place. God has said all along it was for Jacob. So, Esau refuses to accept his own guilt for despising the firstborn rights. And he refuses to submit to God as regards the blessing. Esau was the one who was guilty and given up his firstborn right to Jacob. It wasn't Jacob's fault. And God is the one who said who is to be blessed. But Esau will not admit his own guilt, and he will not submit to God. Now those two things, of course, go together. What Isaac does is what Esau doesn't do. And because of that, Esau is converted from a profane man into a would-be murderer. He moves down. (laughs) This crisis has not left him neutral. The crisis never does. Now, the way this reads, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with a very great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, father. Haven't you reserved a blessing for me? Esau said to his father, Have you only a single blessing, father? Bless me, me also, father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. It's hard to read that without joining him. But we're not supposed to. I think partly it's written this way to tell us you can become sympathetic with the wicked in their sin and you mustn't do so. You know later on in the law you've got numerous times it says you will stone this such and such a person to death. It says your eye will not pity. Somebody commits murder and they come around and they say, oh, no, please don't put me to death. Ah, 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 please don't put me to death. You know, and you hear the sound of a human voice which you cannot help but resonate to because it's a human voice. And you see somebody crying in fear as they're dragged off to be put to death for murder. You can't help but resonate to that. And the Bible says, don't do it. This is harden your heart against it. It says, your eye will not pity. This passage is this way. It's easy to pity Esau and feel bad for him. Part of us wants to. My goodness. Because something like that might happen to me. It's hard to see another person cry without feeling bad. You can't watch another human being cry without feeling bad. At least if you have any type of heart at all. But there are times to say, no, I can't go along with this. I'm sorry you're crying. But you're going to have to face facts here. It's your sin. Now, repent. Don't blame Jacob. We're not allowed to have a lot of sympathy for Esau here. The text invites us to do it, to show us something, our tendency to do it. But we mustn't do it. 
We had this ridiculous situation in California a few years ago when these Menendez brothers murdered their parents, shot them and shot them again, and then they're still alive, reloaded their guns and shot them again. And then the ladies on the jury let them off because they said, well, after all, they're orphans and they'll have to live without their mommy and daddy for the rest of their lives. This is really true if you haven't heard about it. Well, that's just ridiculous. They felt so bad for these two boys because the boys got up and they were real pitiful. You mustn't do that. It's easy to think about that in California. It's harder if it's nearer at home. When we read this passage, we mustn't sympathize with Esau. Esau is full of self-pity and he wants to kill Jacob. Now folks, the only thing to take away from this that's really important is to understand that God puts all of us through crisis times like this. They may not be as big as this, although how big was this? This was in the privacy of a tent. It was in one little afternoon here. And it was a great opportunity. It's how we respond to these crises that makes a difference. Our natural tendency is to go along with our lives and not face the fact that there may be some things in our lives that need to be worked out. God has ways of bringing them up and saying, okay, what do you do? And there's two responses. There's Isaac's response, to submit to God, to be afraid and acquire wisdom. Or there's Esau's response, find somebody to blame. You ever know people who are blamers? Everything that goes wrong, they've got to find somebody to blame. Lots of things happen in life that are nobody's fault. Remember many years ago, we went to a conference. We were supposed to have a motel room. We got there. The motel hadn't fixed the thing up, but hadn't been done right. So we had to go find another place to stay for more money. I don't mean Brendan and me, I mean some other guys I was with. Well, one of the guys, whose fault is this? Instantly wanted to find somebody to pin the blame on. Well, it's not anybody's fault. It's just a snafu. You know, it's just a mix-up. These things happen. Esau is a blamer. He doesn't say, well, the rest of us said, hey, I guess God wants us to pay a little bit more for a different motel room. He's got his reasons. You know, you just submit. But one guy wanted to find somebody to blame. Don't be an Esau and look for somebody to blame. When things like this happen, just say, well, God has his reasons and move on. Sometimes there's somebody that needs to be corrected, but many times there aren't. God puts us in crises. How we respond depends on whether we want to relate to him or whether we want to remain in ourselves. Sad to say... That is what Esau does, and there is no evidence that Esau ever became anything other than a murderer. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm